podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of The Wagon Wheel. I am your host, Jared Kimber. I'm your only host. There's no co-host. That's just me and the people I allow in at the end on the Spotify Green Room chat. So I suppose they're the co-hosts. I don't really know how this works. Sorry if I sound weird. I got a bit of a end of a virus thing. So some of this will sound a little bit like, it's not so much Demi more, is it? It's more like a cartoon fox that's uh, putting on a voice, I suppose, is how I sound at the moment. A huge thanks to all of our sponsors. Manscaped, remember you can get 20% off with the code REDINCA, all one word, which is easy to remember because it's the name of the podcast, man. And you, yeah, get 20% off free worldwide shipping on all of your testicle shaving needs. If you don't have testicles and you know someone who does have testicles, it also will work for them. If you don't shave your testicles but you've ever thought about shaving your testicles, well, if you're going to do it, Quite clearly, you should use Manscaped. Also, thanks to Bodyline T-shirts. I'm wearing one of my T-shirts today. In fact, one of my favorite ones, one with a skull. And obviously, Sports Social are popping ads. So if you don't like ads, you can always just support us on Patreon and you get the podcast ad-free and early, generally, as well. Although, I suppose on the Spotify Green Room, you probably, if you want it the earliest, you just listen to it on Spotify Green Room. But as a general rule, the podcasts are come out on the feed, Patreon feed, before they do on the normal feed. So there's that as well. But big thanks to everyone who supported us also on Buy Me A Coffee. But if you do support us on Patreon and you go on the section first class and above, you get to ask questions first, like Satchmo has. That was pretty smooth. Although it would have been smoother if I hadn't have then said, that's pretty smooth. Was that team that lost to the West Indies the weakest England test side you have ever seen? Secondly, (laughs) okay, let's start with that. Uh, That's a really, really interesting one because there were so many bad teams in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I've said for a long time that this is going to be one of the worst eras for England batting ever. So I suppose on that alone, it's pretty bad. The England bowlers in the 80s and 90s probably in total weren't as bad as this, but were there individual test matches where they might have had worse bowling? Very, very interesting one. People, I just don't know where to look for it. It's not, it's not something that I'm massively, um, you know, it's not something that I've massively um, looked at that much. But, yeah, I, you'd have to go through individual scorecards, maybe in, in individual periods. So you'd have to go through scorecards where they, they struggled in test match series, let's say 2 or 3-0, uh, where they lost. Um, and then you'd have to go through uh, the individual scorecards to find probably a series where, you know, they had a bowler who was injured or sorry, a test match where a bowler was injured or perhaps some of their batters were out as well. Um, but yeah, it, I think the most important thing is, Satchmo, it's certainly one of the um, the worst uh, players of all time. Uh, one of the worst teams that England's ever had. A uh, second one, uh, you're talking about the podcast I've done uh, with, da- with David Woodhouse and you've talked about the pronunciation of Constantine, uh, Leary Constantine or Constantine. Uh, I've heard it both ways. Um, I don't know the uh, I, uh, original one. I'm sure if I go back, I could find it. Um, uh, I think uh, I probably do it the same way that the um, the comic book is, uh, if we're being really honest there, Satchmo. Um, but hopefully, I, you know, I haven't got it wrong too many times. Uh, James says, would you consider it a worthwhile career move for an English-speaking aspiring professional cricket nerd to learn, learn Hindi? Is this something you've tried or considered? I actually did try and learn Hindi, not so much for my profession, if we're being honest, but I wanted to learn another language. Um, And I figured if I learned Hindi, uh, I'd be able to talk to a lot of my friends in India and Pakistan uh, through Urdu. Um, And I I thought any other language I learn, I'm probably not going to know as many people to be able to practice it with. Whereas if I did that, I'd be able to chat to people. Um, It turned out I just didn't have enough time to learn another language, plus I'm not very good at languages. Uh, But yes, uh, a friend of mine, Ed Malion, uh, was a Spanish-speaking English person. That certainly helped his uh, football writing career. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that doesn't always get translated over to English from from players uh, in in Hindi and in Urdu. Uh, you, you can make a fairly good career probably just listening to some of the uh, some of the um, cricket channels, the YouTube channels, and and uh, writing up their stuff for the Western market. Now, uh, so yeah, it would make sense. I don't think there's another language other than Hindi and Urdu 
that would get you that kind of impact either. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any others I'm missing. I mean, obviously, um, Bengali is quite a big one because that covers part of the Indian market as well and Bangladesh. That would have been my other language. In fact, that's a beautiful language. I'd probably prefer that as a language. I just have fewer Bengali friends, um, Bengali-speaking friends, not to Indian Urdu-speaking friends. But uh, I don't think there's really anything else. Like if you think about South Africa um, or Zimbabwe, there's lots of different languages there. Um, and so uh, I, I think, you know, if you're willing to do it, that's probably the language to do it. You just have to be a lot better than me. Satchmo says, is Pat Cummins now in the Australian GOAT quick bowler conversations with Lily McGrath and Linwell, or is it way too early? Uh, look, I would have already had him in that conversation. Um, I looked at his numbers against top order batters up until, uh, I can't remember when I looked at it, maybe a year and a half ago, and he had the almost identical uh, top order record that McGrath had. Uh, and you probably don't expect that from out-and-out fast bowlers. Generally, out-and-out fast bowlers dominate a little bit more against the tail, but they have very similar record to McGrath. The only thing I would say with Cummins at the moment is the majority of his career has been in a very pace-friendly era. We didn't He didn't have to struggle early on in his career the way that someone like McGrath did, the way that uh, Lilly did. Um, so he hasn't quite been tested to that level um, week in, week out, everywhere but obviously Lily didn't play much in Asia was a four test in Asia in his entire career uh, McGrath was absolutely fantastic no doubt about that so there's there's no problems with with what McGrath did I don't think Linwell's quite in the level of those two bowlers either I've got no problem putting Cummins there whether he's the best out of um, all of them I think McGrath's probably still the best out of those three uh, and at the moment just because of longevity I think what Lily did uh, was remarkable. It's also rem worth remembering that Lily and Cummins both had to come back from massive uh, injuries. The difference was Lily actually played quite a bit before um, he was injured the first time. Obviously, Cummins wasn't. But Lily had to rebuild himself completely on his own. Uh, he had to work out what fast bowling was. He changed his technique. He changed his body, uh, the way he prepared for tests, all these sorts of things, uh, which is just absolutely you know wild to think that anyone uh, has the ability to do that so i think when you factor that in what lily did is still absolutely remarkable cummins i remember talking to pat when he was really really young and we're at the scg and he told us he just got off a, a device that was used by at the scg by the sydney football um club the, the swans and they were using it uh and it was I can't remember the full thing, but it was a device where you could run but keep the weight off your body. So you could keep the fitness of running going, but without without the full weight of your body, you know, hitting the treadmill. So Lily didn't have the access to those sorts of things. He didn't have access to any of the Cricket Australia sort of stuff. He, you know, Cummins was in a great professional system that helped rebuild him, and he became this. Lily did it, you know, with, with a friend. Um, so I think it's worth mentioning those things, but if you're looking purely on numbers at the moment, I think Cummins certainly has Lily, uh, covered. I think that would be, I think that would be very hard to argue at this point. Uh, looking at, looking at the two careers, James says, if Chris Wokes gave up bowling and spent two years batting number six for England, what would you project him to average for that time? Okay. So he gives up bowling. That's at six. Nice position, James. Uh, what would he average? 32, 33. I think part of his success at the moment is that he doesn't have to face the uh, newish ball too often, which I do think he has a weakness with. He also quite often comes in when the bowlers are a lot more tired, which means he doesn't get bounced as much. Also, don't think teams game plan for him very much. He's not a consistent member of the uh, England side, so he's not in the team all the time. So I don't think they game plan for him enough. I think he's a very limited player. I, I Technically, he looks quite good, but he can't get out of the way of the short ball. Uh, which is a big problem if you're a top-order batter. Uh, you're going to face a lot more of them than he does. I don't think he faces enough short balls, if I'm being honest. Um, and he is limited. But batting at number seven or number eight, I mean, that's perfect for him because he very rarely has to face the, the new ball. When he does, it's the second new ball, which means he's usually got his eye in a little bit more. Um, the bowlers are more tired. They're less likely to probably bounce him because of when he's coming in. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of advantages for, for Chris Wokes there, but I don't think there'd be a huge 
jump if he suddenly, you know, became a specialist batter. But I, I see why you've asked the question. Ian says, how difficult is it to go straight from the playing staff to coaching a cricket team? Gareth Batty at Surrey has made me think about it, but generally, is it easier this way? The, the interesting thing with Bats, I don't think this has been reported enough, but he's basically been a coach at Surrey for a couple of years. So he's been like their development coach. I don't think he was their second 11 coach, although he might have done that as well. Uh, but he... He basically spent a couple of years trying to retire from Surrey and uh, they kept uh, bringing him back on. Uh, they kept saying, no, 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 we'll, uh, we, we really want you to come and uh, uh, continue to play. So he was trying to go into coaching. Uh, I believe he got, well, I don't know what badges he has, but he must have at least level two or level three um, if Surrey have given him that job. It is just interim, of course. But I do think it's tough. Uh, it's a completely different world. I think in Bats's position, he had a foot in each world. But I certainly have seen it from other positions where players have gone directly from playing to coaching and they really do struggle with it. Um, they struggle with not being seen as a player anymore and they also struggle with not being seen as a coach yet. So it can be very tough. And they're completely different jobs. In fact, Bats was telling me the other day that, you know, preseason, he didn't realize how much harder it was to be a, a coach than it was a player, uh, which was an interesting one. Duncan says, off the back of Mitchell Swepson's fairly terrible figures in Pakistan, what is the future for Australian leg spin? And I guess spin in general after Lion. I don't think Swepson is particularly, you know, Swepson playing two bad tests um, is the end of anything. Like if he hadn't have played these two tests, would you be asking this question and we'd be in the exact same situation, right? So I don't think anyone really assumed that Swepson was going to come in and take huge uh, bags of wickets. I think we'll continue to see him bowl um, on occasion for Australia. You know, I don't think they'll give up on him on the back of this. We've certainly seen other Australian spinners come in and have a uh, similar time. But, you know, Australian leg spin's been going through a drought since Shane Warne. In fact, if you take out Shane Warne, they've been going th since, uh, through a leg spin drought since Richie Benno. Um, so, you know, there's nothing particularly new for whatever reason that, are, you know, around the 1960s, they stopped producing great all-rounders and they stopped producing um, regular leg spinners. Those things sort of happened, uh, but they've overcome that uh, with probably a better supply of fast bowlers and probably, you know, a very consistent supply of top order batters as well. So I, I don't think that that is a problem. The, the, you, you, your overall question of spinning uh, is more interesting. When Lyon does retire, we're going to be in the same position that they were before, uh, which is hoping that someone works. There doesn't seem to be a system in Australia that produces spinners regularly at the moment. And, uh, well, there hasn't been during my lifetime. There's just been lying and worn, right? Um, you know, McGill popped up, uh, but even, even you know, look at some of the other bowlers around them that we just haven't had consistent bowling options in test cricket um, when it comes to spin. Really, since I suppose the end of that sort of Colin Miller, Stuart McGill sort of era. Um, so it's been a problem for a very long time. Graham says, with the start of cricket season here in England, fast approaching, what should aspiring cricketers focus on with regards to strength and conditioning? I've heard Paul Collingwood say there's a direct correlation between squatting and fielding, for example. Okay. Look, I don't do, I don't really do um, strength and conditioning work. So I'm not an expert on that, Graham. One thing I would say is I think too much of cricket fitness is about beep tests and 2K time trials and all this sort of stuff. If I, if I was doing anything, I'd be looking at core fitness because I think core fitness is important, batting, bowling, uh, wicket-keeping, fielding. And the other thing that I'd be looking at is individual fitness tests for um, certain kinds of, uh, of, of uh, roles within the game. And I think those are the things that when you look at it, we don't re we still are not at a level, I don't think, where we um, ensure that people are being able to do that. So, you know, if you go to cricket training all around the world, people still don't practice running in, in, in full kit. Um, you know, very simple things like that. That's a really important thing to be able to do. But core fitness, I think, is the most... If anytime I've ever talked to strength and conditioning in cricket, they say that core fitness is so incredibly important for cricket and it's been overlooked. Um, and uh, Malcolm Marshall did, I think it was 200 sit-ups and 400 push-ups. No, 200 push-ups and 400 sit-ups a day or something like that. Um, and that was his only work outside of bowling. And I think that sort of tells you that the core is quite an important part. Will says, why have I got the microphone in front of my notes today? <laughs> Will says, 
Joe Root has to go its captain, right? Not because it will solve all the issues with England side, but because he keeps making excuses for poor performances. Doesn't seem to inspire the places. And makes odd mistakes in the field. Excelled our two best bowlers because they actually have high standards. Uh, I don't think he excelled the two best bowlers because they have, actually have high standards. I think he looked at the same numbers I looked at and went, it's not working with them. What will happen if we take them out of the situation? I do believe that Jimmy and Brody cause problems in, in, in England. Sorry, in Australia. And I don't believe... All of that was through high standards. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, Joe Root has to go as captain. I really worry about this only because I, if you make Ben Stokes captain, I just think there's too many problems that can come from Ben Stokes being captain. He's the most important player, even more important than Root. He's coming off injury after injury after injury and um, you know mental health um, injuries. So it's phenomenal to be able to, to, to put him under that kind of pressure and say he's going to lead um, the England team. Also, he's not going to turn it around. Uh, I, I really don't believe he's going to turn it around in the short term because they don't make any runs and they don't take enough wickets when they travel. Not sure either of those things are going to be fixed by Ben Stokes. Even if he is a better captain, I don't think they're going to be fixed by Ben Stokes. Uh, the one point I do like here is he keeps making uh, excuses for poor performances. I don't understand the Paul Collingwood, Joe Root tactic at the end of that series. Um, we were on TalkSport and, you know, Steve Harmison was was talking to Joe Root. It was quite a soft interview in, in some ways. And and he said, you know, uh, and, and Joe Root was talking about the positives. And and Steve Harmison just said, well, what are they? And there, are there positives from this particular series? Um Lawrence and Crawley both look good in certain innings, but both still, you know, ended up averaging, you know, what, 28 to 32 against a weakened West Indies bowling attack. You know, didn't have Shannon Gabriel in it. And also on pitches that were flat. Um, he talked up, I think he talked up Matt Fisher as a positive. They dropped him after one test. Mamu bowled some good spells. Did he bowl well enough that makes you feel anything He's got a long-term future. I didn't feel that watching him. Uh, at times I felt like he could fit in really nicely, and other times I felt like there's not a lot going on here. Uh, Jack Leach, again, you know, even when he had pitches that had a bit of turn at times, didn't look particularly venomous all the way through. Um, so I thought it was odd that that Root and Collingwood did that. Um, I think Root will go just because the narrative's turned on him rather than anything else, and that's sadly how sports works more than anything you know more than truth generally it comes from the narrative everyone's saying something so it's going to happen generally how these things work uh will says what do you think of the proposed 12 team premier league with each team playing each other once that's surely a dilution of the quality of the old 10 first division as it means that teams don't play each other home and away i'm assuming you're talking about county cricket there uh will I don't know what that fixes. There's many different ways of fixing counter cricket, if that's what your question is about, Will. And I'm not sure what that specifically fixes that better fixes couldn't make. Um, I think there are many other systems that you could do without a Premier League county system, which I think that's what you're talking about. All right. And what else we got here? Nicholas says, I've often heard the claim that Michael Kasperitz was an Asian specialist. I wasn't watching at the time, uh, but this doesn't really stack up when going through his record. His first tour of India in 98 looks to being pretty poor outside of one good innings. His second looks disastrous playing only in a single match. And he claimed zero for 139 in India's second innings in the VVS uh, match. He had decent tours of Asia in 2004, but was consider considerably outbought by Warren and then McGrath and Gillespie. In fact, Gillespie, he boasts the extraordinary record. Um, uh, no, so what happened with Kasperowitz was, I think for that 2004 tour, he started bowling cutters. Nicholas is my memory. Um, uh, and so so Kasperowitz, for, for those that don't remember, Kasperowitz bowled for Australia, um, you know, yeah, from about 96 to about 2006, I suppose. Uh, big hunking Queensland, currently commentating in the Australia-Pakistan series. Big hooping outswingers. 
about the last bowler you kind of think you're going to be taking to Asia. But they took him to Asia a couple of times, as you said, because he was qu- quite often him and Andy Bickle were the automatic 12th men because they were sort of the best bowlers just outside of the the, the top few. And uh, so with Kasperowitz, um, I think when he went back, and it must have been 2004, but I've never really gone through the numbers, he went back and he bowled cutters. So he bowled very fast cutters um, into the pitch and was very good as a holding role, but also, you know, annoyed um, teams uh, a little bit. It must have been India, uh, if that's what you're saying. I can't remember if he played in Bangladesh around that time as well. But um, So he turned himself into a very useful bowler on those surfaces, um, much the same way that Pat Cummins went and did a similar thing in Ranchi years later. Uh, it's certainly something that Australian bowlers think is quite handy if you can do it. Most bowlers can't do it. So you're basically talking about slower balls, but faster slower balls, I suppose. But bowling at around 125, 130 kilometers an hour and rolling your wrist on it, um, we saw Lance Klusner do it um, as well. So it's something that overseas bowlers quite often try in, in Asia. And obviously, you know, Asian bowlers have done it before as well. So that was why Casper had that um, uh, uh reputation i can't remember if it was backed up by white ball cricket i don't think about michael kasperwitz's career as much as i used to uh but i think that's where it comes from but when you're saying that he doesn't have as good a record as you know mcgrath and gillespie but they're all you know mcgrath's an all-time great and gillespie's an australian great kasperwitz couldn't you know was a was a fringe player you know replacement level player for most of his career um and also the least likely person to ever be good in asia so i think it probably comes from from that um if if i'm remembering it correctly dan Bredick's probably going to listen to the podcast give me a hundred notes on that but that's that's my memory of how it all went about partha says have you seen 83 if so what do you think of it i haven't seen 83 no um uh, you know I, I'm, sh- I'm sure i'll go back and have a look at it um there seems to be so many cricket movies on my list at the moment and i haven't seen too many of them but i w- will have a look at that one Kennedy says, do you think it would be better if players from associate nations weren't counted towards the overseas cap for teams? It's one way of doing it, Kennedy. I think maybe another way of doing it is uh, ensuring that every league in the world has associate player, has at least one associate player on their roster, even if it's, uh, you know, in the uh, as an overseas player, but he's still getting treated the same way and getting trained the same way. Um, there's absolutely no reason why either of those things can't happen. I think we've most of us have been talking about this for a decade, but, you know, the leagues don't see it. I see. I kind of see it in a different way than the leagues do. I kind of see it in a more the NBA style of it. Of like, if you really want to be the global game, you can do all that. And then you look at when Sandeep Lamachani played in Australia and the fuss that was made about him being Nepalese, and you think that's good marketing, right? Um, but so far, that's not been um, how T20 leagues have looked at this. I say, Age Coming says a lot of rhetoric around leagues being bowling and tests feels very unscientific. The idea that it's more destructive than finger spin bowling inherently feels like a bite towards the cooler form of bowling rather than anything based on fact. Is this true? Surely if a spin was inherently better than finger spin in test cricket, we would have seen a similar in- increase in wrist spin bowling in tests that we have seen in T20 over the years. Okay. Decent question, this. The most important thing that you need to know is that I think when it comes to strike rates, um, I think there's a difference between leg spin and off spin. So off spinners have to work very, very hard and long for their wickets. Uh, well, finger spinners have to work very, very hard and long for their, their wickets and wrist spinners don't. And I'm sort of more looking at the sort of the more top level spinners here. But there is there is certainly a difference in that. Um, if you look at some of the great old off spinners, the amount of deliveries that they bowl per wicket is extraordinary. Um, so there's a grind in off spin. Uh, so I think that's part of it. The other part of it is that finger spinners generally are containing bowlers. That's their their main role outside of Asia or days four and five of Test matches. In most of the, most of the world, a finger spinner bowler, a finger spinning bowler is a containing bowler. You know, wrist spin bowlers you get containing bowlers like you know um, uh, Anil Kumble and Shane Warne. But as a general rule, leg spinners aren't containing bowlers. They are the attacking more you know with the higher strike rate bowlers. So I think that's a big part of it. And then I think you have to factor in the wicket. A good leg spinner should be good on any surface. They don't necessarily need the surface to help them um, because of the extra spin and the bounce they can get. And also in the old days, the extra levels of deception that they got. 
A good finger spinner probably always needs a little bit of help from the surface, other than they can get one or two wickets by just being, you know, you watch Harath and Ashwin away from home. If you're an absolute genius of a finger spinner, you might be able to get a few wickets on, on flat surfaces, um, whereas a wrist spinner is the sort of bowler you want on a flat surface. So I think that plays part of it as well. There's also the inherent bias against off-spin, which isn't that it's uncool that you said before. It's that everyone thinks they can do it. You go back to Gideon Hague's incredibly accurate statement, which I've probably said a thousand times in my life, that it's cricket's rubbish skill. That doesn't mean that it's a rubbish skill, as in it's an easy thing to master. It means it's an easy thing to pick up. Everyone in the world can bowl very... Anyone who can bowl can probably bowl decent enough off-spin in the nets. Anyone who's a part-timer has probably bowled finger-spin at one stage um, in a part-time game. Uh, I had trouble at one stage with my action and just in, in the middle of a game chose off-spin and took four wickets. It's so easy to do on a very basic level, and that's why we have so many off-spinning and left-arm finger-spinning part-timers in the world. I think all those things play against it being a cooler thing. Um it just feels like the easier to master skill. And when you get a leg spinner, the dynamism that they give you on uh, usually out. If you had a finger spinner and an off spinner with equal talent, sorry, a finger spinner and a wrist spinner with equal talent, you would always pick the wrist spinner first because of the added a variety they can do, the extra bounce that they can get. Uh, the extra deliveries that they most probably possess um, and, you know, the more dynamism that there are and also that people have probably faced less of them um, at, at the upper level. Um, so I think it all comes back to that rather than anything else. And Christopher says, do England need to produce fa uh, fairly batting-friendly wickets this summer to try and weather their problems and hope that some of their players do just get better? Or in the long term, is it better that players get experience on wickets would do a bit more? In first-class cricket, they should produce as many batting pitches between now and the next five years as possible. Pitches that help fast bowlers, pitches that help spinners, and pitches that get batters into much better technical positions. In first, in test cricket, I suppose they need to play to their strengths, um, which is tough against New Zealand. Like, what do you do against New Zealand? Even against South Africa. I suppose you could have spicy wickets against South Africa. Um, not many of the South African top seven are going to average over 40 in test cricket either. I'm not sure there's a wicket that's going to give England a, uh, a huge advantage over either of those teams because both of those teams are used to decks that go sideways and both of those teams will be happier enough if it's flat as well. Um, if you look at the, you know, a full-strength South African team with their pace bowling, they probably won't mind a bunch of flat pitches and you know, New Zealand have been dominating on flat pitches and we know they're pretty good on green tops as well. So I'm not sure there's an ideal one there, if we're being honest. Thanks to everyone on Patreon for all those questions. Deal. You're on the air. Got it. Oh, there you are. What's your question, Dio? So, I want to know about uh, Harshal Patel. What exactly he bowls? Yeah, I, I've done a video on it. It's the amount of uh, revolutions he gets on the ball. So, we've seen this before. We've obviously seen this with Dwayne Bravo. We've seen this with almost all the guys who bowl the back of the hand slow balls. So, it's not that people can't pick the slow balls. It's the revolutions that they get on the ball means that the ball is doing something that other people aren't doing. It's dropping more. It's sometimes drifting. Um, it's uh, spinning more. And when you're trying to line that up at, you know, 128 kilometers an hour, all those things become very hard. And you, you've got to, you're trying to keep your shape. So if the ball is doing anything extra rather than what a normal um, a cutter slow ball will do, that means that it's actually quite hard to hit it. Uh, and that's essentially what he's doing. He's putting more rotations on the ball. What we usually see with bowlers like him is that they can't do it for very long. And it's interesting in his career, he's, ha he's had a couple of years where, he, or one good year where he was good, then he dropped off for a little while, then he's had another year where he's great, and hopefully that will last a little bit longer now he's he's nailing it. Um, but there could be a period where his fingers, his wrist, his elbow, his shoulder, one of those doesn't allow him to get the same amount of rotation on the ball. And my guess is then uh, he'll probably get hit a little bit more. And then maybe he'll come back and be good again. Um, but yeah, it's all about the rotations on the ball. He, uh, you, We don't, we don't, um, it's something that we don't really study yet in cricket, but there's absolutely no doubt, you know, having looked at super slow-mo of him, that he's just getting more rotations on the ball than other people. Some of his balls actually spin, and the guys who actually get it to spin usually put extra rotations on it. The best one of that was obviously the fizz. Um, and, you know, though, when you're putting extra rotation on the ball, that is, um, it means it's not just spinning, it's dropping quicker. Uh, it's probably going slightly slower than other slower balls. 
and the ball's not acting exactly the same as other cutters act. Make sense? Uh, yeah. Uh, can I ask a follow-up? Yeah, quick. So, will it work in Australia? It'll work anywhere because it's not pitch-related. It's in the air. It can work absolutely anywhere. When you're putting it, – it's, it's more like a baseball pitcher. Um, him and Darren, uh, Darren Bravo, him and Dwayne Bravo, what they do um, is much more like baseball pitching. Uh, you can almost put Lassif Malinga in that as well when, when he was doing what he was doing. What they're doing really is beating you in the air rather than beating you um, off the pitch. Um, most of the back and hand slow balls are very similar again. So it should work absolutely everywhere. Whether it's still working by the time it gets to Australia is a different argument. Um, uh, because those sorts of bowlers we have seen time and time again, they have peaks and troughs, and he will have pretty bad troughs when they come along. Um, and it's hard to kind of work out when a trough is coming up, if that makes sense. Thanks for your questions, mate. Atish, you there? Yeah, hi, David. I'm here. Can you hear me? Hey, mate. I can. What's your question? My question is uh, about the Women's World Cup that's going on. So uh, mm-hmm. something that I've noticed throughout the tournament I've been following for quite closely is that a lot of teams have a specialist number six batter who comes in after four wickets and does not like today Sophia Dunkley famously uh, played a great and she bats at number six even though Amy Jules has had like a terrible World Cup and still she sticks at number six. Similarly, Pakistan and that area has a lot of teams. Neither is Brooke Halliday, I think. So a lot of these teams have specialist number six batters that do not bowl. And it's really strange because it does not seem to be in some other position. It's always number six. And yeah, I just wanted to ask, why do you think that is? I think partly it's random. The, the fact that they're all at number six is random. But the reason they can all have specialist batters at number six is because there's more all-rounders in women's cricket than there is in men's cricket, and that's because there's a lower to- uh, lower talent pool that they're taking it from. So the further you go down in cricket, the more all-rounders you get. So the fewest amount of all-rounders you will ever get is at men's um, test-level nations, and the most all-rounders you'll ever get is club cricket, where everyone thinks they can bat and bowl, until you get to very low levels of club cricket where no one can bat and bowl. Um and so that so if you have a look, so I've had this conversation with people in associate cricket before, you know, essentially saying to them uh, that you'll know when associate cricket is really strong, it's when every team doesn't have three all-rounders because most of these players are not all-rounders. What they are is at best, they're like a batter who should be a very, very part-time bowler. And it's exactly the same with the women at the moment. And that, as we get more women playing the game, and yeah, obviously this is the highest quality women's World Cup we've ever had by a distance. Um, uh, you know, as we get more women playing the game, then there'll be fewer all around. There'll be, you know, it's great that there's Elise Perry, but there's also like we sh- we want to make we want to get past the period where we have someone who could at one stage be considered the best batter in the world and the best bowler in the world, right? Because you should, you should, the best batter in the world should be someone who focuses on batting and the best bowler in the world should be someone who focuses on bowling. Um, and, uh, in the middle, we can still have great all rounders. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, a brilliant part of our sport, but you don't want it so that you have someone who is absolutely that dominant at both. And I think that shows you that there just aren't enough women playing the game at the top level, which we already know. Um, and things are moving on. So I would assume that that plays a very big part to do with the fact that the number sixes are specialist, but I think it's kind of dumb luck that they're all batting at number six, if that makes sense. Just a short follow-up. Why do you think like there's no flexibility within the batting orders, right? Like, why don't they send these people higher up? Because most of them are quite competent batters. Might even be better than the number five quite often all around the right. Why are they not more flexible? Oh, I think that's just that they don't think they're better than them or they think they're better off suiting at the end or, you know, shepherding teams. They obviously think that that's their roles. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, they're not keeping, it's not like there's a, there's a quota that says they have to keep a specialist batter back. I think they're pro- it's probably just a tactical thing um, of, of how they're looking at it. Um, and they probably think with some of these teams, they probably think some of those all rounders may be either more attacking or better in against uh, you know spin um, early on, and then that what they want is the uh, the the more specialist batter to come in at the end and and perhaps carry the tail. But I, I don't know. I'd have to talk to the teams. Um, uh, I I'd say it could be a different reason for every single team. It just happens to be that you've seen that like a little bit of a a pattern that may not be a pattern if that makes sense. It might just be a, you know a random collection of dots. Thanks for your question though. 
Hardeep, you there? Hey, Jared, how's going on, bud? Yeah, not too bad. What's your question? I have just two quick questions. One is, in Indian cricket as it follows, I have seen that they used to push really young batters on big stages, right? For a consistent amount of time. But these days, they are not doing it uh, so on. So this is my question. Do you think there will be any another great batsman for going up for like 14,000 runs in test cricket or ODA crickets in Indian cricket? Indian cricket? Yeah. Yeah. If there's an above average talent that everyone thinks is the next big thing, they will come through. I think what you're finding, it actually goes back to the last question. As you as you get more and more talented people through a system, it's harder and harder to pick teenagers to be able to come through. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about picking someone at 18, 19, 20, 21. That's probably a little bit easier when you're picking from a smaller talent pool. When you start to, you know, widen that talent pool, that becomes a little bit different. Also, with batters specifically, the amount of what we now know about international cricket. So, so for instance, Raul Dravid has gone out of his way, and I'm talking about before he was head coach, but went out of his way to make sure that all these guys traveled around the world to get as much experience in as many different places as possible so that when they got to test cricket, the jump wasn't quite as high. Another thing that I think he took from one of my articles, which he's talked about a lot, which was I wrote a few years ago that Indian cricketers were learning how to play test cricket by playing test cricket. So again, he was then he was trying to replicate what was happening in the test team before they got to the test team. All those things are harder to do if you pluck an 18-year-old out of nowhere. The old method, and it's not just India that had this, Pakistan had this, Australia had this, was let's say you pick the person with the most talent and you throw them into the system. That's a very amateur way of looking at sport. And it's also, for all the success stories that we both know, how many players were just broken by that um, and never uh, fulfilled their talent because they were sent in too early, they didn't have the proper support network. So I think cricket's a lot more professional now and I think players are treated better within the system and we understand things a little bit better and we probably try and set them up more so someone like Shreyas Iyer I think if it wasn't for COVID probably would have spent a lot more time traveling around with you know India A and uh, any sort of backup teams he could because they knew that they he was going to go to the next level but they didn't want to just throw him in um, because they knew he hadn't played much outside of um, Asia at that point and I think now we we understand all those things a lot more and so maybe in general we'll wait a little bit more there aren't that many successful male athletes at 18 um, who are still really good at 30 and 32 anyway, right? It's a very rare thing to ha have happen. Um, you, you Obviously, you get um, these sorts of people occasionally, but quite often it takes a couple of years for them to even get good or they're good when they start, but they've got one big flaw that they can't overcome or there's one thing that they've never actually dealt with before that they have to deal with. All those sorts of things happen. What I think most cricket is trying to do is get to the point now where players when they come in are more ready um if at all possible for those things and throwing an 18 year old in just because they have the best technique probably not the best way of um using your talent and in fact might be the absolute worst way of using your talent thank you for clarifying that just a quick question is <laughs> england going to change their captain or not just that oh no i've not I mean, probably. I said said before in, in in the show that they probably will. I don't think it'll make any difference. I think their problems run a lot deeper than that. I've said that before the Ashes, and I say it after the Ashes and after the West Indies. Thanks for your questions. Basco, you there? Yes, I am there. Yeah. Beautiful. What's your question, mate? Yeah, so taking the point on this uh, finger spinners versus leg spinners, like, I was just uh, like bowling in the weekend, and I was just bowling sliders. And what I found was that actually bowling sliders gives you much more control with the uh, wrist spin action as well as you can bowl the leg spinner as a variation. So, uh, like, I was thinking that has there been any bowler in history who has been a primary slider bowler and why are there not most slider bowlers in the game given that it gives you benefit of both control as well as the wrist uh, spin depth? I would assume that Anil Kumble was probably the first major slider bowler. He bowled sliders and leg spinners probably more in more than probably anyone else, certainly before Warren really mastered it. The main reason most people don't do it is because the slider doesn't do anything. It doesn't have any special qualities unless you're bowling it regularly with leg spin. So if you it, it's not a stock ball as a stock ball, it doesn't it doesn't skid massively, it doesn't bounce weirdly. 
It doesn't drop. The only way that you can bowl them consistently well, I've found, um, is if you can do the, what, the way that Afridi and I suppose Anil Kumble did, um, less so worn, is make them drift a little bit and then go straight on because then they, they at least still look like they're going to be a leg spinner that they go straight. Um, but it's, it's a ball that really works if you have another ball next to it, right? Whereas having a great leg break works if you have a great leg, leg break. I mean, in some ways, the slide is no different than the arm ball. Um, uh, the only difference I would say is you have – no, even the arm ball can skid on a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, so what the arm ball and the slider do is they skid on a little bit more than a standard leg spinner or an off spinner, but they don't skid like a flipper does. They don't, like, have super skid. Um, and so if I'm facing you and I realize you're bowling the majority of sliders, you're basically just bowling slow, medium, straight balls at me, right? They're not bouncing. They're not turning. If you're lucky, they're drifting a little bit. Okay, so I play them like an in-swing bowler, which is how they used to play Anil Kumble, um, and that's how the best batters handled Anil Kumble until the pitch started helping him towards the end, and then you're on your own against Anil Kumble. Um, but that's how bowlers used. To, sorry, that's how batters used to play Anil Kumble. They used to play him like an in-swing bowler, um, and not all slider bowlers can bowl <clears throat> can get constant drift on that ball. And I would assume you can only get drift on the ball consistently with a slider early on. Once it gets damaged, I would say that that drift goes away because you're not putting enough revolutions on it. So it has something to do with the uh, with the seam and the shiny side of the ball, um, is my guess. I'm not an expert on them, but I did bowl a lot of sliders in my time. Uh, so that's what I would guess. Uh, and also, I remember my slider was much better in England than it was in Australia, where the balls were, you know, swung a little bit more, especially the Dukes. So, yeah, it just doesn't do that much, I suppose, is, is the safest way. So so the most important thing as a spinner is to have your stock ball be constantly dangerous, right? So if you take Junta Mendes is the perfect example of this. Everyone got very excited because he had a million different deliveries and new deliveries we hadn't seen before, and he mastered a bunch of cool old balls. As a spinner, the most important thing you can do is have your stock ball be dangerous because then you're always on top and you're always in the game. I don't think a slider is consistently dangerous unless it's being chopped and changed with a really good leg spinner consistently. Okay. Good. Thanks. No worries. Cheers, mate. Oh, we got some chats. Adnan says, do you think teams like New Zealand and England will find it easier to win tests in Pakistan due to the fact that they don't really have test quality spinners in their side? Yes, I suppose. Although flat pitches in Pakistan doesn't really suit the England bowlers. And also, you, it looks like if we're, if we're basing on what we've seen in that, you know, seven tests so far, eight tests, is it now? I think. I think if, it, you know, based on that, I don't really think that England is going to make enough runs to cause problems in Pakistan. New Zealand could. Uh, they've got seam bowlers who, who would be able to do that. I thought New Zealand seam has bowled really well in India uh, without much luck at times, but I, I certainly thought they bowled quite well in India. Um, Neil Wagner might be an interesting bowler in Pakistan as well. But yeah, uh, it's possible. Uh, Pakistan really disappointed me against Australia. Uh, I forget their pitches, which is stupid to um, come up with those surfaces in a World Test Championship. You're much better off doing three raging turners or seamers um, and making sure you get a result than you are doing those pitches where you've, they've just ended up with almost no points uh, from the World Test Championship. Uh, absolutely beyond stupid. Um, but I also just didn't think they played brilliant cricket at all times as well. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Baba thought they dominated two of the test matches. It's not how I read the series. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I don't think England have a chance of winning there, but I think New Zealand certainly have a chance of winning in Pakistan based on everything we've seen of New Zealand recently, based on everything we know of Pakistan, recent Pakistan pitches and based on um, how Pakistan played against Australia. Uh, but I you know, would still think, well, Pakistan should still go in favourites um, in that series. It certainly should against England. Siddharth said, the most talented player not to succeed in Test cricket. I don't know who he's specifically talking about. Is he talking about Ajanta Mendes? Ajanta Mendes wasn't that talented. He had a box of tricks, if you're talking about him. Um, he wasn't specifically talented. He was very good in a limited period where you hadn't seen him very much and where you had to hit against him. There have been far, far more talented bowlers than him that have not succeeded in Test cricket. Jamie says, uh, just for a cricket NBA comparison, Joe Root is Steph Curry, youthful, likable, talented, and not a typical alpha. Ben Stokes is like Clay Thompson, 
awesome but injured. Who can be Draymond Green, the real powerhouse organizer? Well, Steph, so the thing with Steph Curry is that his offense is so good for Golden State that they basically have had not had to worry about offense around him. They've never run a good offense that doesn't involve Steph Curry because, you know, outside of the Joker, he's the best offensive force in basketball and everyone's so petrified of him that it allows other people to score when he's on the court. Root would have to average 70 to have that impact, right? And even then, if he averaged 70, don't think that's enough to overcome just how bad the rest of that batting is. Ben Stokes is a much better player than Clay Thompson. Ben Stokes is probably much more like Draymond Green, right? In that he can bat and bowl. Um, he's slightly limited in, in some of them. He's, but he is sort of a glue that, that brings the team together. It's not that England are missing an organizer. It's that England are missing literally six frontline batters. And I include Ben Stokes in that. Uh, you know, while I think he's a very good all-rounder, you really want a guy who's averaging less than 40 to be your all-rounder when you have a bunch of other guys averaging over 40. That's not a slight on him because it's not his fault no one else can score any runs. But they don't have anyone who is league average batting, you know, test league average batting in their side. That's a huge problem. Absolutely mammoth problem. Then on top of that, if you look at their bowling, Stokes has to get overused as a bowler. That's a problem, and it's probably going to come back to bite England in the long run. But the bigger problem, realistically, is that they don't have an absolute bankable overseas bowler who's going to take four, four and a half wickets per game, probably five wickets per game, through in, in a bunch of different surfaces. Jofra is the most obvious version of that that they would love to have, and they don't have Jofra Archer. Uh, whether his body will ever be up, allow him to be that is, you know, whether he wants to go play test, uh, you know, wants to go play T Twenty cricket and make more money, even if he wants to be a Test cricketer, I'm not sure, you know, especially bowling at his pace, playing all three formats, all these things are, you know, going to be a stress on Jofra's career. But they don't have another guy there. So it really isn't so much a, le- a leadership thing, um, what you're talking about here, that it really is more that they don't have a lot of the pieces. If you put a lot of the pieces into this side, Joe Root's captaincy is still just as bad, but they'd be winning more games. That's the truth of how these things work. And I know that's not how we've been, you know, uh, <laughs> trained to think about cricket for generations, but... The truth is that this whole magical captain theory is is nonsense. Mike, Mike Brealy, Douglas Jardine, MS Dhoni combined couldn't make this England team one of the best teams in the world when there's no batting in the team. They're not ever going to make enough runs. Then overseas, they don't take enough wickets. So what you're left with is occasionally at home, their batters will, will get enough runs, but their bowlers are so good that it doesn't matter. That is the under line problem of of how this how of how the whole thing falls apart right and it's it keeps coming back to the same thing this is not a leadership issue this is something went wrong in english cricket a long time ago when it comes to uh how they were producing talent i i'm gonna take it back to the 60s and look at how many top test batters england has produced since 1965 there's so few so many of them have come from Southern Africa, right? There's a problem in their system when it comes to finding batters. And if you go back through the entire history of the game, they've always been great at finding bowlers who are very good when it comes to moving the ball around, right? That's absolutely no problem at all. Moving the ball around in the air has been a thing. Cricket isn't about moving the ball around in the air as much anymore. And moving it around off the seam you really want to be able to do that at a quicker pace and quite often be taller or stronger. And England isn't producing those bowlers because those aren't the bowlers you need in county cricket. The bowlers you need in county cricket are Craig Overton and Darren Stevens. And we know that Craig Overton doesn't necessarily transfer to test match quality. Darren Stevens, we don't know, although after what Kyle Mays did the other day, maybe it's worth giving him a shot. But chances are that Darren's, what Darren Stevens won't, uh, does won't do, what Jamie Porter does won't do, Right. This is the biggest problem. Um, Those are two systemic problems within English cricket. And if you want me to go back even further, there's a reason why English cricket didn't develop 
better. And it's because up until World War II, England was just so much better than everyone else, right? Australia was the only team building uh, another dynasty. No one else was anywhere near them. County cricket up until World War II was better than test cricket outside of Australia and England. After that, we see this explosion of, you know, the West Indies and South Africa, even with apartheid, you know, it was start, that was starting to explode. We see New Zealand get really good, right? We see uh, India and Pakistan get really good. Then we see Sri Lanka get really good. These little explosions of all these places around the world getting good at cricket. England is still using the same system that they had um, all, all that time, uh, you know, so, so long ago. And it doesn't, it isn't producing in the same way it did. My guess is it's not like there are less talented people in English cricket. It's that the skills that they're learning in county cricket are not training them specifically to be successful in test cricket now, would be my guess. Um, so I really don't think that it's specifically a leadership thing at all. Um, but I understand your point. And, and you're thinking, he's, look, he's Joe Root is not an inspirational leader. You, you watch him in that press conference uh, after the after losing, and you're just like, that's a hard guy to get behind. Um, he wasn't angry. He wasn't honest. Uh, he looked a little broken as a person. Oh, we we were debating on TalkSport, watching him talk with Danny Rubin, the, the press officer, before if he was going to come out and quit. Um, he looked so crestfallen before he even did that. So, look, there are problems with Joe Root. I don't think Ben Stokes is this incredible leader either. I, there might be a bump under him because of the sort of person he is. And he may even be able to squeeze out slightly better results from this team. I can't see how this team's going to consistently win when they don't have uh, they don't have a number one spinner. They don't have a number one away from home seamer. They don't have about five out of their seven batting line uh, lineup sorted. I just don't see how that team with all those problems is going to consistently win away from home. And it's going to be a dominant force at home. And you kind of need to be one or the other, don't you? Um, and I just don't see that coming through, if we're being completely honest. Anyway, everyone, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for coming on for all the questions. Remember, if you missed the start and you're just like, well, this is great. I'm loving this. Podcasts go out on Red Inca. They'll be up on Saturday. We quite often put them up on YouTube. We can see my smiling face for the bits where I smiled not for the bits where the person who's trying to ask a question couldn't and I get annoyed at Spotify Green Room. Obviously, you can follow me here on the Spotify Green Room and you'll be told every time I'm doing a podcast. Red Inca comes out twice a week. The other episode is usually a chat with someone about something they know a lot about and you can find us on our YouTube channel and everywhere. Thanks to Manscaped who help you shave your testicles better than you used to shave your testicles. If you use the code REDINCA, all one word, you get a 20% discount and free worldwide shipping. Thanks to Bodyline T-shirts and thanks to Sports Social for getting us the rest of the advertising. If you don't want the advertising and you want to ask your question first on this particular show, you can join us on Patreon and you can sign up on Patreon for first class and above and that gets you access to questions every week. But thank you to everyone who joined us here on the podcast today. And thanks to everyone else who's listening. Remember, for these sorts of podcasts, the more that you share, you like, you subscribe, you tell your friends, the better it is for us. So thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.